Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, March 31st, 2015. Do something a little bit different today. Hour one is its own thing, hour two is its own thing, and we're not going to have a bunch of little things in hour number one. I'll explain here in a second. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down. Slow down there, partner. (laughs) Open up your Bible and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God, and sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we actually take the time to open up the Bible, use sound biblical exegesis and hermeneutics, a Christ-centered approach to Scripture, which, by the way, is what Jesus taught, and uh, and to see if what's being taught by the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, prophets, authors, and folks put out by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be purchasing, whose materials need to be studied in our small groups and things like that, to see if what they're saying actually squares with God's Word, to see if it, well, if they're teaching sound doctrine, you know, the historic, orthodox, Catholic, small c, Catholic, I know people cringe at that word, small c, meaning universal Christian faith, you know, that's the idea. And uh, and over and again, we demonstrate here that uh, the more popular they are, the least likely they are to actually rightly handle God's Word. So let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to do something a little bit different, and uh, the occasion for this is kind of a rare occasion, and let me explain. Um, I am one of these guys who keeps an eye on Rick Warren like a hawk. Well, not really, but um, I do keep tabs on him, and I'm aware of what he's preaching on and teaching on and stuff like that. And one of the reasons why I don't do full Rick Warren sermon reviews, I've I've done a few of them in the past, and that is because Rick Warren preaches forever. It just takes forever. Anyway, so... uh, (laughs) It's like, you know, they they clock in at like 56 minutes, an hour and 10, and it's like, I know, no, no, I can't do it. (laughs) So, you know, when we do Rick Warren updates, oftentimes he'll be an hour number one, and it'll be a portion of something he's been, you know, he said in his preaching, and that's kind of the idea. 
But um, he did something a little bit different this past Sunday. They launched a brand new church-wide campaign out there at Saddleback. And if you're not sure what that is, well, remember the purpose-driven life? It's the 40 days of purpose. See, that started off as a church-wide campaign at Saddleback, became a book, and then became church-wide campaigns uh, uh, across the the globe. You You know, evangelical churches everywhere did these 40 days of purpose kind of things. Anyway, so he's launched a new church-wide campaign out there at Saddleback called Daring Faith. And um, he, you know, he's preached his normal amount of time, but he spent the more than the more than half of his sermon time literally uh explaining to the people at Saddleback how the uh the church-wide campaign is going to work. And as a result of it, when he finally got to his message, I mean, it was like a size that I could review it. Now I'm not going to do a, a I'm not going to do it as a sermon review in hour number two. That we're going to do something different there. I'll, we will be doing a sermon review, but uh, you know, in fact, it's going to feel like we're going to be going one way, and all of a sudden we're going to go the other way. But there's actually a common theme between the two of these, by the way. But uh, it, so anyway, so what we're going to do is we're going to listen to uh, like a little less than half of Rick Warren's sermon from Sunday, which means it'll take up the whole hour. Uh, of uh, the first hour of uh, fighting for the faith, and uh, and then in hour number two we'll do our uh, our sermon review, and I'll let me kind of set that up for you. You remember yesterday we had uh, that segment we did on John Crowder, you know, where he was talking about being drunk in the glory and and in the presence of God, and you know, and sloshed and couldn't walk, and you know, and this is supposedly all by God's grace, right? Anyway, I I asked myself the question, you know, self. Um, what kind of church would invite somebody like John Crowder to actually teach the people at their church to be drunk in the glory? And I thought, you know, <clears throat> this would probably be the kind of church that would make it into our sermon review rotation. So I went on over to the church at Parkview in Port Wainini, I think in California, and uh, the <laughs> and just listened to a few of the sermons and thought, ooh. We're going to have to pass this along. So this is going to like go up there in like the uber creepy fest. But the name of the sermon we're going to be reviewing uh, in hour number two from the church at Parkview, which is delivered by Rick and Melissa Wood, the two of them. Uh, it's called The Abundance of You. The Abundance of You. And wow. It <laughs> yeah. This is, uh, well, the best way I can put it is... Um, Remember we did that segment a few weeks ago about teaching that you're a god? Well, yeah, Rick and Melissa Wood teach that we're gods. Yeah, no joke. So the abundance of you. Yeah, it'll probably be one of the more satanic things that we've played here at Fighting for the Faith in a while. So that's how we're going to spend today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Two things that we're going to be covering. It's not really a light episode, and there is a theme between the two of them. See if you can figure it out. And uh, so since we're going to be doing a Rick Warren update, a purpose-driven update, if you would, to start the uh, program off, that requires us to do this. I don't know how I know, but I'm gonna find my purpose. I don't know where I'm gonna look, but I'm gonna find my purpose. Gotta find out, don't wanna wait. Got to make sure that my life will be great. Gotta find my purpose. 
before it's too late. All right, so that's our purpose-driven update music. Now, the name of the message we're going to be listening to, <laughs> well, from Rick Warren, and, and, and again, the, what, what occasioned this is because it became a tiny little sermon inside of the larger one, is, enti- get this, it's entitled, How to Get Ready for a Miracle. How to Get Ready for a Miracle. You've all read the uh, story of Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. Mm -hmm. Did you know that apparently inside that story are hidden principles that you can apply to your life if you need a miracle? Yeah, that's what Rick Warren is about to teach us. So we will just go ahead and get right into it without any further ado. Here is Rick Warren from this past Sunday and his sermonette within a sermon entitled, How to Get Ready for a Miracle. Here we go. I want to spend the rest of my time, the last few minutes, uh, just talking to you about how do you prepare for a miracle. And we're gonna look at the most famous miracle of Jesus Christ. It's the Jesus feeding the 5,000. How he took one little boy's lunch and was able to feed uh, the 5,000. And really, this story is all about how God turns a little into a lot. You need to know these principles. But- I, I do. <laughs> so there's principles in the story of Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 that I need to know so that, you know, I can get myself ready for a miracle. Hmm, why do I feel like that is not why Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John put the story of the feeding of the 5,000 in all of their Gospels? Why do I feel that? Hmm, probably for a good reason, but we'll, we'll listen a little bit more. Many times for the rest of your life, you're going to need God to turn a little into a lot in your life. You got a little energy, you need a lot of energy. So if I'm suffering from energy deficiencies, God can multiply that. You got a little bit of talent, you need God to turn it into a lot of talent. Okay, so I'm suffering from talentlessness, or you know, little talent, and God needs to multiply talent in me. Okay, so if I apply these principles, I can go from having little talent to God multiplying and me having like you know loads of talent. Uh-huh. You got a little opportunity, you need God to turn it into a big opportunity. Yeah, right, because that's why this story was written by the four evangelists. You got a little, con- little connections, relationships, you need God to turn it into some big relationships, some big connections. You got a little bit of money, you need God to turn it into a lot of money. Many times in your life, God is going to need to turn a little into a lot. I got a little bit of help, but I really need great help. How does God turn a little into a lot? That's what this story, and that's what this... Do do I need to know how he does it? You see, that's kind of a weird way of putting it. How does he do it? I don't know. Um, (laughs) Because the mechanics of the miracle are not explained. It kind of gets chalked up to that big old category of, well, God is almighty, you know, all-powerful, and Jesus is God. So, I mean, he can do things that, like, will just boggle the mind. You know, and how he does it, no clue. No, I have no clue how the mechanics work. I mean, when God said, let there be light in Genesis 1, poof, there was light. You know, God said, let the earth sprout, you know, plants and vegetation and seed-bearing whatevers and the critters and, you know, and blammo, they were there. How did he do? I don't know. <laughs> so um, for Rick Warren to basically say, hey, oh, he's figured out how, yeah. Yeah, he knows how Jesus fed the 5,000 and the, and locked into there are principles that you can apply to your life so that you can make yourself ready for a miracle means that Rick Warren has no clue 
what the Bible's about. Is all about. Now, Jesus never did miracles just to show off. Like, hey, look at this miracle. I learned this one at the Magic Castle. It's really cool. You can impress your friends with it. And so use it at your next cocktail party. Do this little uh, miracle. Jesus never did a miracle to show off. Every miracle is to teach a spiritual truth. And the spiritual truth... Oh, really? Uh, To teach a spiritual truth? Hmm. I do seem to think that, uh, you know, Jesus is walking on the water and his, you know, the miracle of him calming the storm uh, on the Sea of Galilee when, you know, the boat, you know, the little boat was being tossed to and fro and him just basically saying to the storm, be quiet. And it hushed up. It resulted in people worshiping Jesus as if he were God. Now, let's, in fact, we're going to get right into the biblical text itself to kind of make the point. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the story of Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. And we can do this from several different passages, but we're going to do this from Mark chapter 6 today, just because that's where I decided to read it from. And you can read this in Matthew 19, you can read it in John 6, you know, um, I forget where the Luke passage, the cross-reference is in uh, in the Luke passage, but here we have in Mark chapter 6, starting at verse 30 is where we're going to go to get some context, and here's what it says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So they had gone out on a kind of a training mission and you know, and did ministry, you know, that Jesus sends them out, and now they come back, and, and they told Jesus all that they had done and taught, and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat, and they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five loaves and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set before the people, and he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. There you go. So what's going on here? What? Why is this recorded? Well, we're going to go with the Christ-centered hermeneutic because... <clears throat> I don't know if you've noticed this, but Matthew writes about Jesus. Mark writes about Jesus. Mm -hmm. Luke, well, he writes about Jesus, and so does John. And John even makes a point of picking up some of Jesus' teaching, where he basically says that the scriptures are all about him. 
So we're going to work from this premise. This is about Jesus and who he is. And so we're going to look at, you know, kind of typologically a little bit of some cross-references. At least we'll look at a cross-reference in the book of Numbers, and you'll kind of see what's going on here. So here we have a food miracle, people being like thousands, okay? And 5,000 men means the crowd. That, that also included women and children. So you can think of the men as being heads of the families, and so it was 5,000 families, really, that were there. And you, you put them, you do the math, you know, in the days before birth control, and, you know, we're talking what, 20, 30,000 people that Jesus fed? Yeah, that, that's kind of a big deal. So we'll go into the Old Testament real quick. We're going to look at Numbers chapter 11. I'll start at verse 4. And here's what it says. Now the rabble was among them, and they had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt, and and it cost nothing, and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. So, hmm, so notice here, there, um, the people of Israel, they were being fed miraculously by God himself. What did Jesus do in the feeding of the 5,000? He miraculously fed a crowd of people. Now, in the feeding of the 4,000, it makes a point that they were in the wilderness, uh, when this happened, you know, which is kind of an important thing. So there's a parallel. There's a typological parallel between the feeding of the children of Israel, miraculously by God, and the feeding of the you know, of Jesus' followers, this crowd, by Jesus. It's pointing to who Jesus is. So um, now Numbers 11, verse 7 goes on and says, Now the, the manna was like coriander seed in its appearance, like that of bedellium, and the people went about and gathered it and ground it into handmills or beat it into mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. So Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant, and why have I not found favor in your sight, that you that you lay the burden of all of this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give birth to, to, to them that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me and say, Give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my that, that I may not see my wretchedness. So notice what's going on here. There's there's almost a, an exact parallel, although. In Moses' case, he's grumbling in a sense. He's kind of speaking negatively and, you know, basically saying, Lord, why did you put this burden on me? How am I supposed to feed all of these people? So Jesus, notice what happened in the text that we read in Mark chapter uh, 6. You know, Jesus says to the disciples, you give them something to eat. This is starting to sound similar to what 
we saw in the Old Testament. This is pointing to who Jesus is. It's pointing to his deity. And that's the point of this miracle. Not that the feeding of the 5,000 is a reproducible miracle if you can dig deep into this text and find the principles that the disciples applied. If anything, the disciples showed that they did not truly yet have faith in Christ, so they can't be credited with with the miracle. The miracle is credited to Jesus, plain and simple. And so this is pointing to who he is, which is why when you read the cross-reference in uh, John chapter 6, John chapter 6, the same miracle is, uh, is recorded for us, and um, here's what it says. I'll kind of pick up. Uh, John gives us a little bit more details. John chapter 6, verse 8. Now, one of the, his disciples, Andrew, Simon's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves, two fish, but what, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed it to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. You see, John gives us the the real significance here. By doing this miracle, the crowd recognized who Jesus was. (gasps) This is the prophet, the one that Moses told us about. And it was the food miracle, similar to what Israel experienced in the wilderness, and what Moses talked about. The the parallel between Numbers 11 and this passage is, is amazing. And they recognize who Jesus is. And verse 15 says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This miracle proved who Jesus was. It made it so that even the you know the common folk who were there listening to him in this great crowd, they recognized immediately who Jesus was, so much so they were going to make him king by force. But Rick Warren, he's not going to preach this about Jesus. No, no, no. This is about you. You know, this is what how Rick Warren preaches. He's also a narcissist in the same vein as T.D. Jakes and Stephen Furtick. So he thinks there's principles here that you can apply and you can make yourself ready for the miracle. So uh, let's see what Rick Warren does. Truth of Jesus of the feeding of the 5,000 is to show us how to prepare for a miracle where God turns a little into a lot in your life. Very important as we start daring faith. Now, this miracle is so important. It's the only miracle of Jesus told four times in the New Testament. It's in the book of Matthew. It's in the book of Mark. It's in the book of Luke. And it's in the book of John. All four authors were so impressed with this miracle and you couldn't deny it I mean there were 5,000 people who saw it that it it makes all four now anytime God tells you something four times he's saying you really should pay attention to this one you should really pay attention to this one now here's the story Jesus goes out into the Judean desert and he's out there and he's teaching notice he's not teaching from the text bad sign And about 5,000 people follow him out into uh, the the Judean desert. And he's teaching all day. And at the end of the day, 
5,000 people are hungry and they're 25 miles from the nearest McDonald's. <laughs> or actually in Israel, it'd be McDavid's. And, uh, and there's no fast food nearby. And everybody's hungry. And the disciples come to Jesus and go, hey Lord, it's late in the day and everybody's hungry. And Jesus says, you feed them. I love this line, we'll get to it in a minute. You feed them. They go, Lord, that's impossible. It's physically, practically, uh, you know, uh, humanly impossible for us 12 to feed these guys. What is going on here? Jesus is performing a miracle to teach us the four steps to preparing for a miracle. And I told <laughs> No, he's not. He's performing the miracle so that people know who he is. It's showing that he's God in human flesh. During Daring Faith, you're going to see some miracles in this church. They're just going to happen. And I've, I literally have not hundreds, but thousands and thousands of letters of people who have miracles in previous campaigns. So what is Jesus telling us to do? He's telling us the four keys to getting ready for a miracle. Write these down. Here's the first step. Step number one to a miracle in your life is admit I have an unsolvable problem. He is utterly clueless. This passage is not about four principles that you need to apply to your life so that you can have a miracle. Nowhere in Scripture is this miracle or any other miracle defined, you know, or told that this is a reproducible thing in your life. Oh, man. Yeah, again, read, you know, John chapter 6 and John's account, and it's clear what was going on. This showed them who Jesus was. I must admit that I have an unsolvable problem. Now, let me be real blunt. If you don't have an unsolvable problem, you don't need a miracle. That's kind of obvious, right? If it's not unsolvable, you don't need a miracle. If you have a solvable problem, solve it. <laughs> just, just solve it. I mean, people come to me, Rick, I've really gotten overweight. I need a miracle. Stop eating. <laughs> it's not like a miracle. You don't need a miracle. You need a diet. Right. And a lot of times we want miracles when God says, no, no, you're just overspending. The reason you're in so much debt is you're overspending. You need a plan. You don't need a miracle. You need a, you need a spending plan. But the first step is to admit I have an unsolvable problem. Now, in Mark chapter 6, here's the story. When Jesus saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them. So he began to teach them, teaching them. By this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples came and said, this is a remote place. Send the people away so they can go and buy something to eat. But Jesus answered, you give them something to eat. And they said, you know, Lord, that, that would take eight months of a man's wages. And notice they go all economics on Jesus here. Now, in that verse, in that passage I just read, we have the three typical responses when we have an unsolvable problem in our life. You do this, everybody does this. I do it. We procrastinate, we pass the buck, and we worry. All three of those things are in that passage right there. First, we procrastinate. When we have a problem we can't solve, we just keep putting it off. We know we need to solve it, but we don't know how to solve it, so we just keep putting it off. We delay, we pretend it doesn't exist, we look the other way. 
the phrase in this passage says, by this time it was late in the day. They were procrastinating. They had all day to figure out food service for 5,000. They weren't procrastinating. Jesus taught all day. People. Let's call up dominoes or something. They had all day to figure it out, but they had done nothing. Now, procrastination only makes a problem worse in your life. If you got cancer, you deal with it now. Not tomorrow, not next week. You deal with it now. Procrastination has never solved any problem. It only makes it worse. I wonder what problem you have been procrastinating over. This text has nothing to do with you procrastinating about anything. Man, pack your bags. We're on a guilt trip here. I wonder what problem you know is there and you're pretending isn't a problem. What problem are you pretending isn't in your marriage? What problem are you pretending isn't in your body? What problem are you pretending isn't in your finances? We procrastinate. And then we pass the buck. And what we do is we blame other people. We say, well, it's not really my problem. It's her problem. It's, it's their fault. And we blame others. And you've heard me say many times, you spell blame, be lame. Every time you blame, you are being lame. And, and, and so the disciples say, send the people away. What are they doing? They're passing off responsibilities. Hey, we didn't invite these guys out here. We didn't ask them to come eat. We didn't ask them, we didn't promise them food. We didn't even invite them to come here. Jesus teach. I said, just send them away. Out of sight, out of mind. We didn't ask them to come, let them find their own food. We pass the buck on our problem. And the third thing we do is we worry. And we fret and we stew and we get anxious and we get stressed out. And we say, Lord, it would take eight months wages to pay for these guys. And the disciples' anxiety goes into overdrive. And you know, I can just imagine Peter doing this cost analysis. Imagine the expense. 5,000 people. You know, how are we ever going to import the food? How are we going to keep it hot? How are we going to distribute it? How are we going to do the cleanup? Who's going to get the health permits? What about liability insurance? <laughs> and their minds are just going in overdrive, and we worry, worry, worry. And notice, I love what Jesus says. He looks at these 12 guys and he says, You feed them. You feed them. And they go, Moi? Me? Peter's going, are you kidding, Lord? They said, that, yeah, that, why, I, we can't do that. Now, here's the point. They're procrastinating, they're passing the buck, and they're worrying. What's the problem with this picture? They're standing next to Jesus. <laughs> the guy who could easily turn stones to bread if he wanted to, who could easily feed everybody instantly if he wanted to, They're standing in the presence of the Son of God and they're going, what's going on here? And Jesus says, you feed them. And they say, Lord, that's practically, financially, and humanly impossible. Question, has God ever asked you to do something impossible? (laughs) Yeah, you know, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Something like that, you mean? Um, wow. Uh, but he means God get revealing to you, speaking directly to you into your heart, your purpose and things like, you know, or some kind of problem that you're supposed to solve in the world. And it's impossible. Wow. This is, uh, it's worse than I remember. And I just listened to it earlier this morning. Okay. We are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at 
Pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Balance of uh, this little mini sermon by Rick Warren on the four things you need to do to prepare for a miracle. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> presents Church Day Select. Siri, what are the chances of hearing Rick Warren actually rightly handle and correctly teach God's Word? That will take some serious number crunching in order to figure out. I'm not a Cray supercomputer. I'm just an iPhone. Are you sure you want me to calculate that? Yes, I'd like you to try to calculate that. Okay, I'll give it my best shot. Calculating. 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 Ouch, my processor chip hurts. Calculating. Calculating. Okay, I think I've got the answer. Here you go. There is a better chance that Harold Camping will predict the end of the world and there is of you hearing the Bible rightly taught by Rick Warren. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to believe that the Bible is about Jesus and not about you. And that's the way it should be. 
Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us. That's right. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support, because we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of this little sermon on uh, how to get ready for a miracle and the four principles that you can apply from the feeding of the 5,000 so that you can make yourself ready for a miracle in your life. Here again is Rick Warren. He loves to do that. God loves to ask you to do something possible, impossible. And you go, Lord, I don't have the time. I don't have the money. I don't have the energy. I don't have the education. I, I just, I, you got the wrong guy, Lord. Moses, I want you to do this. Not me. Yeah, you know. Jeremiah, why me? You know, you, you know, you gotta, you gotta say like Isaiah, use me. Here am I. Send me. And, and, and God says, I want you to do the impossible. Why does He ask that? Why does God ask you to do the impossible? He wants to stretch your faith every time. When God asks you to do something you think is physically and financially impossible, he wants to stretch your faith. And this is the first principle of a miracle. I have to admit that the problem I'm facing right now is unsolvable. Okay, principle number two. So the first principle of a miracle, if you want a miracle in your life, you you must admit that the problem is unsolvable. It sounds like, you know, like, the people who go to AA and stuff, you know, the first thing you have to do is admit that you have a problem, right? You know, it's like, uh, you know, hi, I'm I'm so and so, and I, you know, I'm an alcoholic, you know. So, so the first thing God wants you to do is say, yeah, um, hi, my name is Chris, and uh, this problem is unsolvable. Yeah, uh huh. Here's a second step to a miracle: give God what little I already have. I give God what little. I already have. Yeah, that was predictable. Um, you can see that one coming. And he, yeah, again, this isn't about any of that. This is about Jesus. And now Jesus says to the disciples, I want you to do a little reconnaissance. Go out and see if anybody's got any lunches. He says, how many loaves do you have, Jesus asked. Go and see. He sends them out on a little reconnaissance to 5,000 people. And when they found out, they said, five small loaves of bread and two fish. One little boy has a a sack lunch. Now wait a minute. Out of 5,000 people, only one guy brought a lunch. I'm thinking a lot of rich people are hiding the picnic basket under their robe because they don't want to share it with anybody else. In 5,000 people, it is highly doubtful to me that only one boy brought a lunch. His mom has packed him, you know, three or four or five little barley rolls and a couple of, you know, dried fish. Okay, he's the only one, but he becomes the hero of the story because he's willing to offer up what he's got. That's weird because when you read John's account, which I just read for us uh, a little bit ago, let me read again. 
Um, so John chapter 6, verse 13, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments and five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. See, yeah, see, that's the thing is, is that the little kid wasn't the hero of the story. Jesus was. It's just so bizarre to me that Rick Warren would say that the little kid with the sack lunch is the hero of the story when the hero of the story is clearly Jesus and they because he performed this sign and they knew that he was the prophet, the one prophesied, told about by Moses and the prophets. Oh, boy. Gives God what little he had. Now, why did Jesus do this? Why did Jesus said, find out how many lunches are out there? Find out how many loaves of bread are among this crowd. Why did you, he didn't need anything to do a miracle. He just go, bread for everybody, manna falls. There are a million different ways you could have done it. Why did he do this? The second principle of a miracle is this. God always starts with what I have. God- uh, yeah, so where are you finding these principles, by the way? Because they're not in this text. You're just like inventing them. Always starts with what I have. It may not be much, but I give it to God. I say, God, I don't have much time, but here's my time. God, my finances aren't much, but here's what I've got. God, my talent isn't much, but here's my talent. God, my sex life isn't much, but... (laughs) There's a little nervous laughter on that one. Okay. But he, I give you, I give you everything in my. This sounds so pious. Uh, I don't, it's not much, Lord, but here, here, here's what I got. It's you know, it, boy, it makes you the hero, doesn't it? Yet, John makes it clear Jesus is the hero, and the sign was performed, and they realized that this is the one promised by Moses and the prophets. If I give you my reputation, I give you my heart, my soul, my past, my present, my future. It isn't much, but I'm going to give you my five loaves and two fish. Now, it's interesting that when you, God always starts with what I have. John chapter 6, verse 6, tells us a little detail of this story. It said, Jesus asked this, how many loaves do we have out there? Only to test them. For he already had in mind what he's going to do. He wasn't sweating it. When God asks you to do the impossible, he's not sweating it. He already has in mind what he knows to do. He'd seen the need long before they did, and he had a plan. I want you to write this down. It's important truth. God always has the answer before I even know the problem. In your life, God always knows the answer before you even know what the problem is. He saw the problem long. It's not late in the day for Jesus. He saw it long before. He knew it was coming. He already has a plan for it. God already knows the solution to your problem before you even recognize it's a problem. So why are you worrying? That's one of the principles of a miracle. I admit I have an unsolvable problem, and then I give God what little I have. Number three, the third thing I do, is I put it all in the hands of Jesus. I put it all in the hands of Jesus. And in John's account of this miracle, it tells us this little detail, that the disciple Andrew finds this one little boy who'd brought a sack lunch. And his mom had packed him, it wasn't much, had packed him, you know, five little barley loaves or muffins and maybe a couple of sardines or something, I don't know. But he's got fish 
and little loaves of bread. It's not much. Now, I imagine that a lot of other people probably bought bigger lunches. But this boy becomes a hero because he gives God whatever he's got. It isn't much. Again, John's account makes it clear that Jesus is the hero after he performed the sign. They weren't talking about, way to go, kid. You gave Jesus your lunch, and man, oh, you're, the, you're just like the best. No, they realized that Jesus was the promised Messiah. I'm giving it to you. And the Bible says in verse 41, uh, Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish, and he blessed the food. And he broke the loaves, and as he kept breaking them, he kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. And here's the third principle. God will use whatever I give him. God will use whatever I give him. It may not be much, but if I give him what little time, energy, effort, whatever I've got, I give it to God, he will use it. Now, I don't have time to get into this, but we could do a detailed study, looking at the other verses, of how this little boy gave. He gave willingly, cheerfully, and immediately, which are the keys to a miracle. He gives willingly. Oh, man. How are you getting all this information about this kid? I mean, he's only mentioned in the account of John. Ay, ay, ay. And John does not even give us much details about this kid. Let's see here. So uh, let's see. Uh, Now the grass when Jesus took the loaves. Okay, okay. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. So there's no adverbs used about this kid. He gave it cheerfully, immediately, or anything. As far as we know, I mean, he could have, like, said, I, why'd you take my lunch? And the, you know, he was—he may have been crying after Andrew swiped his lunch. It doesn't say. Uh, oh man! You see, this is what happens when you want to read yourself into the text because you got—you ultimately are trying to take, you know, Jesus's spot. You are making yourself into God with the, a narcissistic reading because all of the glory is then going to you, although you shrouded in pious language. Really, where's all the glory going? You. We continue. Matthew tells us that he volunteered. Let me ask you this. Would you share your lunch? That's not true. Matthew doesn't even mention the little boy. Uh, Here's uh, Matthew's account. Uh, Matthew chapter 14. Um, I'll start at verse 15. Now, it was evening. The disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. The day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages to buy food for themselves. Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said, we only have five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here. And he ordered the crowds to sit on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. Yeah, Matthew doesn't even mention the uh, little boy. And yet Rick Warren says that that Matthew said the little boy volunteered. No, he doesn't say that. Not in the Gospel of Matthew. We continue. You're in 5,000 people, crowd of 5,000. Everybody's hungry, and you're the only one who's going to say, hey, I got something to eat. Would you do that? Took a great faith. He did it willingly. He did it cheerfully. He didn't grumble. He didn't complain. He didn't worry. And he did it immediately. And as soon as he saw there was need, he said, Jesus, take my lunch. And he gives his lunch. No hesitation. Now, because of that, we come to the fourth key to a miracle. Write this down. Gives his lunch. No hesitation. 
Now, because of that, we come to the fourth key to a miracle. Write this down. Expect God to multiply it. Oh, yeah. So you have to expect it. I don't recall in any of the accounts that the disciples expected Jesus to multiply it. They were, you know, they didn't see that one coming at all because the way they put the phrase was, hey, we got, you know, five loaves and two fishes, but, you know, what's that between so many? You know, they, they did not know that Jesus was going to multiply it and they didn't expect him to do it. There was no expectancy in any of the gospel accounts regarding this miracle. I give God whatever I have, I put it in the hands of Jesus, and then I expect God to multiply it. Now notice what happens. In Mark chapter six, verse 42 and 44, it says everybody ate, that's all 5,000. They all had enough. And it said afterwards, they collected 12 basketfuls of leftovers. I love this. They're going home with doggy bags. <laughs> Jesus doesn't even just fill, satisfy everybody. He makes a spiritual lesson. Obviously, the 12 is a symbol of the 12 tribes and his fulfillment. But, but he said, the 12 basket full, and they're, they're going home. Now, I, I love this. Imagine this kid goes home, and he walks home, walks in with 12 baskets full of loaves and fishes. And his mom says, Jacob, where'd you get all that food? He goes, Mom, I gave, it to, I gave my lunch to Jesus and he multiplied it. Go to your room. <laughs> and you stay there until your father gets home. And you stay there until your... So notice uh, Rick Warren's insisting that, uh, that Jesus isn't the hero of this story, but this kid is. Um, he's even named him. The kid now has a name Jacob. And now he's imagining parts of the gospel that aren't even there. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Unbelievable. Tell me the truth. Really, Mom? I gave Jesus my lunch and he, he multiplied it. You just stay there. Wait till your father gets home. I mean, would you believe that story? I mean, it, it's, it's mind boggling. That's why they call it a miracle. Now, here's the fourth principle. You might write it down. Whatever I give, I always get back more. Whatever I give. Uh, <laughs> this is just. This is terrible. I mean, seriously, did he pass hermeneutics when he went to seminary? I always get back more. This little boy's lunch not only blessed 5,000 other people, but he ends up being richer himself. I could give you a lot of testimonies on that one. Uh, it doesn't say that he, the kid, went home with the 12 baskets full doesn't say that at all. We don't know who ended up with those 12 baskets full. How God blesses you as you try to bless others that you cannot outgive God. And he ends up with more than he started with. Now, here's, here's the point, the big lesson. God likes to do miracles through people, not independently. He likes to work through the ordinariness of people. And, and uh, what we wait for God to do for us, God is waiting to do through us. During Daring Faith, this 10-week series, God wants to turn you into a miracle machine. <laughs> Why is anybody listening to this person? I mean, he, the, what he's saying is absurd. 
and it's not what this text is about at all. So he's saying God wants to turn the people at Saddleback into miracle machines. Oh, man. He doesn't want to just do a miracle for you. He wants to do a miracle through you, like he did through this little boy who gave him wasn't much, but it was all he got, how he had, and he gives it to Jesus, and God takes it, breaks it, blesses it, and multiplies it. And God wants to do that in so many ways in your life. Now, this miracle is so appropriate to our congregation right now because Southern California and America and even the world is spiritually hungry, and they're starving to death for spiritual truth. And the people at Saddleback, you know, they left church that day starving as well, not realizing they were fed like total junk food without any calories in it. Wow. <laughs> so he's talking about spiritual people being, you know, leaving, you know, who are spiritually empty and not and hungry and stuff like that. Why didn't you tell them about what Jesus did and how this points to him being who he claimed to be, who the prophets said would come? I mean, there's so much you can do with this, and the text is about Jesus. It's not about the little boy. I mean, the little boy gets a an honorable mention in one of the four accounts. That's it. Why are you making him the hero rather than Jesus? God has said to Saddleback, you feed them. You, you, you feed them. I said, Lord, we, we, we can't do that. He asked us to do the impossible. Well, actually, Christ has asked you through his word to preach the word and to feed these people, you know, with God's word. You're not doing that. But because of your faith and because of the faith of thousands of people in the last 35 years who gave their lunch, thousands of people who gave their lunch, Saddleback has reached and ministered to tens of thousands of people. And, and, and now we're making it all about Saddleback. I'm going to lose my lunch. It's millions and has gone to every nation in the world, and no other congregation has done that. Why? It's our choice. It's our choice. And the amazing thing about this congregation... Uh, yeah, he's now preaching about Saddleback. Not, still not Jesus, but Saddleback. The little boy, not Jesus. Teary about this is because at every single time in 35 years we have been faced with a challenge like this, you have stepped up to bat and you have knocked it out of the park. You've hit a home run. And you have offered your lunch to Jesus time and time again. That's what this church is built on. And you have held up signs like we did years ago in the stadium where everybody held up the sign that said, whatever it takes. And you have said, Rick, just tell us how far, how high, where to jump, what to do. We're ready. We're willing to go. And as a result of that, the Bible says, Mark 10, 27, all things are possible with God. The ultimate example of all things are possible with God and the reason we know that all things are possible with God is what we're going to celebrate this week. It's called Easter. Easter. Because if God can raise a person from the dead, he can do anything. If God can raise... A well, yeah, it's true. God, there's nothing impossible for God. Human being, he can raise a dead marriage. If God can raise a dead human oh, being... Oh, no. Now, so now all of a sudden... <laughs> 
Jesus' death and resurrection means, hey, that means God can resurrect a dead marriage. Now we're going to narsajit before Easter, Jesus' bodily resurrection from the grave. Wow. He can raise a dead career. If God can raise a dead human being, he can raise a dead dream. He can raise dead finances. He could raise a, a, a dead body. God. God's going to resurrect dead dreams there at Saddleback. He's a miracle worker, you know. All you got to do is give him your fish and your loaves. He can do anything. Easter proves it. The Bible says in the Old Testament, is anything too hard for the Lord? The answer is obviously no. No. And Easter is the ultimate example that the greater the sacrifice, the greater the results. Oh, no. So you're taking, <laughs> oh, man. Oh, so you're turning Jesus' death and resurrection into a principle about how God multiplies things miraculously? Oh, no, no, no. Jesus pays the ultimate sacrifice, gives him his life for the sins of mankind. He didn't just die on a cross. He died to take my guilt, my shame, to be my Lamb of God. And in doing that, it results in the salvation of the world. All of us can enter into that salvation. So his ultimate sacrifice made it possible for anybody to be saved. So the more you sacrifice, the bigger things God can do, you know. I said it like this in John 12. A kernel of wheat must be given away and planted in the soil. In other words, a pack of seed over here, it doesn't do anything sitting on the shelf. A kernel of wheat must be given away, planted in the soil. Unless it dies and is buried, he's talking about his own death and burial, it will remain a single seed. But its death will produce many more seeds and a great harvest. All right, that's the end of the message as presented on the Saddleback YouTube channel. Wow, was that just awful. <laughs> this, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, it's about Jesus, not the little boy. And when you make it about the little boy, then you can make it about you. And by making it about you, you get all the glory, even though he, oh, yo, you sound like you're so pious because you're, you're putting things in the hands of Jesus, but you're the one doing it. You're the one really getting the credit. And uh, wow, what a mess. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break. We come back. A sermon review from the people who hosted uh, John Crowder's Drunken Glory stuff. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Hi, Rich Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... <laughs> You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. We're going to take a look at the ecclesiastical model employed by much of American evangelicalism today, especially as put forward by the seeker-driven movement. 
Chris Rosebro talking about his presentation at this summer's Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. We're going to take a look at where this idea of a vision casting leader comes from, what its main tenets are, and we're going to compare that so-called ecclesiastical office to the biblical office of pastor to see if the two are actually synonymous and interchangeable or if this concept of a vision-casting leader actually turns a pastor into a false prophet. You can meet and hear Chris Rosebro making the case against vision-casting leaders in the church June 19th and 20th at the Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference in Collinsville, Illinois. For more information, visit issuesetc.org or call 618-223-8385. The Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time. Let's do this right, though. the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's i don't know what this is sermon comes to us via the church at parkview in port wanimi california rick and melissa wood will be delivering this sermon and the name of it is the abundance of you yeah, it's all about you and how great you are. And oh, and by the way, you're gods. Yeah, that's what they're going to be teaching everybody. And they're the people who hosted, um, you know, just you know, like a week ago, a couple weeks ago, um, John Crowder and his Drunken Glory stuff. So if you want to know what kind of church would invite John Crowder, well, you're about to find out, and I'm sure you won't be disappointed. So let me back off on the music. And without any further ado, here is Rick and Melissa Wood and their sermon entitled The Abundance of You. Here we go. Heavy weight of God's just presence and glory. Just close your eyes for a second. I kind of just, uh, yeah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> feel the weight, his presence, his peace. Yeah, I am feeling no peace. I'm feeling utterly creeped out, like the presence of evil has just entered the room. His person resting on you this morning. It's one of those times I feel like I could, if I was sitting down, I'd slide right out of my chair under the ground. I don't know about you. I just, just feel heavy. Chuck said groovy. I feel heavy, man. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus. No, just go ahead, because I'm kind of just out of it. (laughs) I'm glad you're leading, because I think I would just stand here in a stupor. Go ahead. (laughs) Are you sure? Yeah. 
Anybody else feel as good as I do, or is it just me? Is, uh, did somebody put something in my coffee? I mean, my tea? What is this? It feels really... Go ahead. Kind of a weird transition. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. I'm sober. No, don't be sober. No, I mean, do you want me to be sure you want me to continue? Yeah, let's go. Well, it's funny that you're feeling that way, because a few weeks ago, we preached about pleasure, and how important it is that God wants us to experience pleasure wants you to feel high like Rick does right now or or just enjoy what he's created enjoy the earth so God wants you to feel high like you know Rick is feeling high right now I mean you could tell somebody's really spiritual and super de duper close with Jesus when you, they they're just so drunk and they're inebriated on the Holy Spirit just like Rick would is you know, right now yeah if you ever saw something like this happening in your church this is not a manifestation of the Holy Spirit flee the building literally yeah, lest the, the roof cave in on you. You know what I mean? That he's created. Enjoy the gifts that he's given you. And while all of that is so important that we enjoy God and we enjoy what he's created, um, a lot of his creation is sitting right here in this room. And so today we're going to talk about the abundance of you and enjoying who Yeah, that's right. It's It's really all about you, you know? Who you are. And really... Reveling in who God made you to be, your gifts, your uniqueness, because every person in this room. Let's just meditate on how awesome you are. It's all about you, you know. Is abundant. And you have an abundance for me and I have an abundance for you and you have an abundance within yourself that you can enjoy yourself. That's a funny word. Abundance. Abundance. Say that. Is it going to be like this? Yeah. The whole message? No, it's not. I just thought it was a funny word. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, demonic cackle in the middle of a sermon. That's just great. Do, we, do you just see Abundance. the light? You can <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. Oh. Go. No. Just. I'm good. I'm good. There is an abundance in you. There is. I'm gonna... Well, this was about... This was gonna... Go ahead. Oh, is that me? I didn't put that in there. Did you put that in there for me? <clears throat> Go. I want to hear you say that because I didn't put that in there. Oh, this is going to be a difficult message. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm not sure what's going on there, but it, this is not a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. So, <laughs> right? <laughs> God within himself in the Trinity is the essence of relationship, right? He himself is a picture of relationship. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he longs for relationship with you. He is the essence of relationship. And, and she's doing this without any verses, which means she's not doing theology. This is what we call philosophy. So he desires relationship with us. It's the same reason that we desire relationship with one another and we desire relationship with him because we were created in his image. And so we long for relationship. So if God desires relationship with you, God of the universe, then to me that says there's something special about you. Yeah, because, you know, wow, I, I just wasn't looking at it right here. I you know thought I was a sinner in need of a savior and and who knew i what i should have been realizing is is that there's something really amazing inside of me you know and i just oh, 
I've been missing it all these years. And I feel like so much of the destinies that are being missed and just simply us enjoying life is because of the fact we don't realize how great we are. Hmm. And I know we say that, and we're going to repeat some things that we've said many times over the years, but I feel very strongly about us really recognizing what's inside. Yeah, she feels really strongly about this. And because she feels strongly about it, that has to be the Holy Spirit telling her, right? And this is more than just an identity message. We all know we're children of God. You know, we all know we're new creations. We've hammered that to death. But what, as children of God and as new creations, do we carry inside of us? What is possible with us? Did you want to talk about Trinitarianism at all? Okay. So, number one, you are amazing. Yes. Yes. So point number one from Melissa Wood's co-sermon with Rick, who's stoned out of his mind on the glory, whatever, um, is you are, well, you're just the bee's knees. I am. And, yeah, you are. And you guys can woohoo that, and that's great, and yes, I'm amazing, but do you live like you really believe you're amazing? You see... Yeah, because I, I go to church to find out how amazing I am, right. See, the scripture is full of declarations of who we are. I mean, we're new creations, we're, we're royal priesthood, we're children of God, we're friends of God. I mean, the list goes on and on and on about all these amazing things that God, that Jesus says who and what we are. But I don't know about you. You get those little seeds of doubt, those little fly-by thoughts that try to tell you otherwise, right? We're all struggling week to week. With- yeah, I just when I look at my life and I look at my life in light of like, you know, what God wills for me to do like from something like the Ten Commandments, I, I don't seem so amazing anymore. I seem like a sinner. Weird. The things that try to tell us something different than what God has said. And that's always the first place of attack. Okay, the first place of attack. You know, your life is not destroyed by your circumstances. Mm. Your life is destroyed by what you believe. Yeah. Okay, cancer can't take you down. It can't. Bankruptcy can't take you down. But if you believe that you are not victorious and you are not amazing, that will take you down. Yeah, see, cancer can't kill you. What will kill you is if you don't believe you're amazing and you don't believe you're victorious. So they're teaching something akin to the word of faith heresy, um, which makes sense because you're going to hear them in a few minutes say that we're all little gods. Okay, all right. What you believe about yourself will affect your entire life. And so the enemy... Now notice, she's not preaching from a biblical text in context. She's not engaging in biblical exegesis. She's just spinning theology out of her out of her heart, uh, which Scripture is clear that it's out of the heart comes all kinds of sinful desires and things like that. This is a sinful theology. This is not a biblical theology. The enemy wants to attack what you believe. He wants to attack what God has said. And there's two great examples in the scripture. The first is in Genesis, all the way back to Adam and Eve, when God told them, do not eat of this fruit because this will happen. And when the enemy came to them as a serpent, when the serpent came to them, the serpent said, did God say this really? Is this really what God said? He came and tried to attack what God had said. 
Or let's go to Jesus in the wilderness in Luke chapter 4. Right before this, this chapter, Jesus had just been baptized. And when he came out of the river, the dove ascended, father came down, the dove ascended and said, and God said to him, this is my son in who I am well pleased. Immediately he's in the wilderness. He's tempted by the devil. And the devil says, did God say, and he says it twice to him, did God say, if you're really the son of God is actually what he said. If you're really the son of God, then do this. If you're really the son of God, then do that. The enemy was trying to come and put doubt against what God had said. Hmm. And that hasn't stopped. And I agree with that exegetical point you know, regarding the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. That's true. Stop today. Because I know there are prophetic words in this room that are bursting with possibilities, but many of you have felt the voice of the liar saying, did God really say that? Mm, So apparently the devil's coming along and causing them to doubt that they've received a direct revelation from God. Yeah, that, that just might be sanity telling them that, not the devil. I think I, I is that really true? I think I can actually say something. Good. I think I'm, he's coming out of his drunken stupor long enough to say something lucid. I'm capable of saying something. <clears throat> one of <laughs> one of the greatest. Um, you know, I was reading Genesis this week, and and humanity is the pinnacle of creation. And one of the greatest uh, lies of the enemy and of religion with this big R is that we are less than. But if you look at... And he's talking about it's a lie that we're less than deity. The revelation of Scripture. The, the presence of God in the beginning what God did to rescue us and to bring us into union with him, humanity is the highest of creation. And I'm going to say something that's probably maybe bother some of you, but maybe feel like borderline heretical. But Athanasius, anybody heard that name? Athanasius, one of the great Eastern saints, he said that God became what we were so that we could become what he is. And, you know, people have gotten... And Athanasius wasn't talking about us becoming deities. ...gotten grief. And actually, who is it that quotes the Psalms in, in the New Testament and says that we are little G's, gods? I'm not saying- yeah, I covered that on our program, and we listened to the different uh, televangelists teach this doctrine that we're little gods. That psalm in particular... It's God speaking in irony, not saying that they're actually deities. These are people acting like deities, and so God's going to judge them and point out in the, in the process that they're not. They're going to die like men because they're not really gods. Saying we're gods, we need to be worshipped. But the point is that each human has a spark of divinity. Uh, where in the Bible does it say we have a spark of divinity? That's not, that's, that is like totally Eastern. That is that is not that's pantheism or panentheism. That is not biblical uh, Christianity. That's uh, and it's almost monism. It's so bad. And that it, it, God is above. Hear me. God's up here, and man is right underneath. 
and there's nothing between God and man. There's everything else is put under our feet, if you will. And I think that we lose sight of that, and it makes us uncomfortable because we've been told in religion over and over and over and over and over and over again, beaten down, don't trust yourself, you're just a sinner, you're just a sorry whatever, you're going to struggle with this till you die, don't you know who you are? And, and we've been whipped and beaten about who we're not. Yeah, it is ridiculous. So much so that when we say who we really are, it almost sounds like we're being heretical. <laughs> God became, Athanasius, I mean, this guy was like one of the pillars. We wouldn't have the, our Bible today if it wasn't for him and some other guys who... Yeah, and as good as Athanasius was at defending the doctrine of the Trinity, he also ended up uh, being a big proponent of mystic, not mysticism, but, you know, well, actually a form of it, monasticism. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so he's a sinful human being just like the rest of us, but nothing he wrote is on par with Scripture. You're going to show me, if you're going to say, I'm a God... You have to show me from the clear text in context that say that. We're not gods. We're creatures. We're created in the image of God, and that does not mean we're deities. Argued all this out. I mean, he was one of the first great saints, and he's the one who said God became what we were so that we could become what he is. So as we're moving forward, it's not like, yeah, rah, rah, Jesus had to save me, and I'm, you know, I'm still you know, this high above the dogs and the cats and the cattle on the earth or whatever. No, you are divine with a small d. He is divine with a big d. That's all I can say. When Jesus- and you've said enough that you've proven by your actions and your words that you're a heretic. And this proves that whatever you're claiming that, you know, this you being baked in the glory and you being high, that is not the Holy Spirit. You've proven by your false doctrine that you are teaching uh, basically doctrines of demons and that what you're manifesting is not God the Holy Spirit, but something utterly evil. Jeannie Morgan got up here a little while ago, and she shared her testimony. She talked about doing a sozo this week, and a sozo is, is our uh, way of inner healing. It's, it's just a ministry that came out of Bethel Church, and there's certain tools that they give you to help people get inner healing. And so I'm involved in the sozo ministry, and so I do a number of sozos with people. And the reason that I love sozo is that one of the primary tools in sozo is to connect people to what God is saying, to hear his voice and ask Father God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit what the truth is about them. And so many times in sozos, people go back to memories in their childhood or, or memories even in their adulthood where they began believing a lie. And I kid you not... 90% of the lies have to do with believing who they are. Yeah. You're unworthy. Yeah. You're not important. You're not valuable. And every time when they ask God, what's the truth? It is always some form of you're powerful. You're beautiful. You're yeah. valuable. You're worthy. I love you. Almost every single time. in those Without any mention of the cross. Okay. Those sozo meetings, in those times of inner healing, God wants to bring inner healing by reminding them who he says they are. That should say something to us about examining what we believe. Yeah, we've already demonstrated by your false doctrine here that you're not hearing from the Holy Spirit. Whatever these people are hearing from, it is not God, the Holy Spirit. And examining how that propels us forward. Yeah, you know, I, 
one of the criticisms we'll take is, you know, we tell people, you're no longer a sinner, you're a saint. And people, because that's what I grew up, we had to... That's weird. The Apostle Paul, writing towards the end of his life, one of his last epistles, 1 Timothy, here's what he says. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, or the chief. And Paul there is not speaking in past tense. He's speaking in present tense. It's a me, a go. And it's first person, present, singular, indicative, active. I mean, it's straight up. Paul, in Romans chapter 7, describes the Christian life, the things I don't want to do, I do, the things I want to do, I don't do. He's speaking about himself in the present tense as a Christian. So what these people are saying is contradicting God's word on all kinds of levels. And this proves, beyond a shadow of a doubt, this what they're manifesting, these signs and wonders they're claiming are from God, they are not. Their doctrine proves it. What was our mantra? Make sure you sew up on... Can I get an interpretation? You go to church Sundays and Wednesdays, read your Bible... Give, evangelism, yeah, keep short accounts, keep short, short shrift, keep short accounts, and make sure you remember that you're a sinner. You just got to remember you're a sinner, because if you believe that you're a sinner, you're surely not going to sin. And you get accused when you tell people you're a saint, you say, well, you're just giving people permission to sin. Again, why did Paul, at the end of his life, say, this is a trustworthy saying, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, or the chief? Why did Paul write that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Sin. Wait a second. I'm not the one calling him a sinner. You are. I'm giving the permission not to sin. You're saying you're a sinner. You're destined to sin. You're always going to sin. Who's the one giving permission to sin here? Yep, that's right. The one calling them a saint or the one calling them a sinner? Give me the in there. Yeah, you're not actually doing what you're doing from a biblical text. You're just making stuff up. You're, this is philosophizing. I, come on, folks. Let's just like, you're amazing. God doesn't, you know, God, remember that bumper? What was the bumper sticker? God, God don't make no junk. I'm getting ahead of myself, so I'm going to stop. So uh, I just want to clean up what you said a little bit. What? <laughs> Do you have enough towels around here and Windex or 409? You know, many times grace is criticized Thank as, you. As being something she has that my gives people a license to sin. Even Paul was accused of that. You're saying that the grace of God covers all, empowers all. Are you saying that we can just go on doing whatever we want then and that we can be sinners? Absolutely not. In fact, the opposite of, is true. If someone is telling you... you yeah, you're not making any sense because what you're doing is you're philosophizing, not actually preaching a biblical text. And Melissa, you need to sit down. You shouldn't be teaching in church anyway. You are a sinner. You are a sinner. You are basically handing them the rights to sin. You're basically telling them, yeah, you know what? Go ahead and sin because you're a sinner anyway. That's who you are. Yeah, it's funny that Paul doesn't talk that way. And he's the one who said, should we, you know, he's the one who, number one, confesses that he's the chief of sinners and yet says, should we go on sinning so the grace may abound? May it never be. Well, how do you reconcile those two complete disparaging discrepancies from the Apostle Paul, and how do you reconcile that with this bizarre theology that you're spinning out of your head? 
That's why it's so important to change this way of thinking, to believe and declare that we are saints, to believe that the grace of God is enough, to believe that Jesus did it for us when we can't do it. Because when we believe that, it takes away not only the permission and the right to sin, but the desire to sin. Yeah. So when we talk about, we're not just talking about you're amazing just because we're self-help and rah-rah, pump you up. It's, it, has, it's, it's not a, it goes deeper than that. It goes deeper than that. It goes to the very foundations of, 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 of creation, of who God is. It goes very to the nature of who he is. Melissa mentioned, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It goes all the way back to before time was time. That you, there was, a, there was a being called God that existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And they ring around the rosy around you. And we're, you are right in the middle, me as well. But all of us. So now I'm right in the dead center of the Trinity. Really? Wow. Again, which biblical texts are saying this? Oh, he doesn't need to have any biblical texts because he's baking in the glory of the Holy Spirit. He's inebriated on the Spirit, remember? So everything he's saying has to be true because he, he's manifesting the love and the joy and the, and, you know, and being just like totally, you know, how, how do they, how, his brain is fried, man, on the glory, you know? So he's got to be telling the truth, right? It's humanity. We're right in the middle. We're grafted in. It's really not a trinity. It's a quadrinity, you know. Oh, wow. It's not a trinity. It's a quadrinity, and you're the fourth person. Utter blasphemy. We're the fourth person, if you will. We're included in that relationship. We're right there. And that was, that was preexistent. Time didn't exist until God began to create. He created time. Before there was ever time, an eternal being knew your name, and you were included in this relationship of love and perfection before you even knew that you were you, before even time began ticking away. That is like, will blow your mind. That's like a trip. You know, it's a trick, a demonic trick. What you're saying is not true. But I'm done. I'm tripping. (laughs) You are. You know, negative words aren't powerful just because they're words negative words are powerful. and now we get a little joel osteen word of faith heresy here powerful because you begin to believe them and so grabbing hold of the little negative things you say will make a huge difference in what you believe about yourself i mean women i mean what do we all say about our appearances and our body size you're hot i said what do i say oh sorry I mean, being real vulnerable here, (laughs) being real vulnerable here, about five years ago, I used to be a personal trainer. I was about three or four sizes smaller than I am now. But I was so hypersensitive to my appearance that I was not happy. One or two pound gain would affect me. I'm constantly looking in the mirror. How are my muscles growing? How is my waist looking? Do you even lift, bro? Do you even lift, bro? <laughs> Sorry. I'm serious. So here I am, five years later, probably 25 pounds heavier, and I feel more free than I've ever been because I know who I am. It's not about your size or what you... Yeah, who's she preaching about? Oh, yeah, not Jesus. Herself. Who 
look like. It's about who God says you are. And it's so important for every one of us to grasp a hold of that. Number two says you are uniquely gifted. All of us are uniquely gifted. One of my favorite things to say is that every one of us was created to shine a unique aspect of God's glory that only you can shine. And if you put your light out or you hide it under a bushel, the world is missing something that only you can shine because you're uniquely gifted. And this church is miss, missing something really important, the, uh, the light of Christ. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 12, where it talks about the body of Christ. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it... Yeah, I have no idea why she's quoting this text. ...make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? We don't want to be alike. Chris Valentin says, you can only ever be a second best somebody else, but you can always be a first best you. Yeah, and Chris Valentin is uh, nowhere found in scripture. If you don't allow God to answer the question, who am I for you? you're going to be looking for the answer to that question everywhere else. Absolutely. You know, we live, in a, we live in a culture that, especially in our education system, that's always working to improve our weaknesses, right? And there's such a focus on what we're not good at and trying to get better at what we're not good at that sometimes we miss recognizing our strengths. Sometimes we miss going, well, what am I good at? And, we, and pour into that instead. It was put like this to me years ago when I went to a songwriting conference in St. Louis. And this guy said, you know, I'm not a good lead guitarist, but I'm a good rhythm guitarist. On a scale of 1 to 10, I can play lead guitar at maybe a 3. Where on a scale of 1 to 10, I could probably play rhythm guitar at an 8. So I could spend 8 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year, trying to improve my lead guitar skills and maybe move from a 3 to a 5. Or I could pour my time into my rhythm guitar skills and move from an 8 to a 10. And I could be the best... best Yeah, this is such a helpful sermon. I mean, whew, this is going to change my life. Not really. Um, What is this? The job of a pastor is to preach the word. They're not preaching the word. They are literally just off-roading at this point, just making theology up from their own experience, from their 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 Holy Spirit drug trips. Yeah, it, none of this is uh, is solid biblical doctrine and theology. None of this is really based upon a text being rightly exegeted. And what's the big draw to a church like this? The so-called claims regarding the signs and wonders, right? Oh, this is a true. Oh, this is a church that God is blessing because I mean, look at the manifestations of the Spirit. I'm saying, look at the manifestation of the teaching and the doctrine, and it proves that the Holy Spirit is not manifesting there. Don't believe these people's claims that they're somehow, you know, tripping out on the on the Holy Spirit of God. That's not the Holy Spirit. 
their teaching proves that this is doctrines of demons and that, that what they're manifesting is unholy, not holy. Best rhythm guitar player that I could possibly be because that's how God has gifted me. So many times we allow comparison and our differences to that we let that keep us from shining our light. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, not like Rick. I'm not like Melissa. I'm not like Laura. I'm not like Chuck and Anna. So I'm just going to hide who I really am. We need every person in this room to be who God has created them to be. Now, some of you, I feel it. Some of you are sitting here going, I don't even know what my strengths are. <laughs> I don't even know what my gifts are. I'm not even really sure I know how God created me. <laughs> Today is the day to begin that journey. We don't want to go another day further in this church without releasing the uniqueness in each and every person in this room. Yeah. Um, boy, there's all kinds of problems here. Have you figured out the connection and the similarities thematically between Rick Warren's sermon and this one? There is a very strong connection. You're a tap, you know, the body of Christ, there's many examples. You know, another one is tapestry or mosaic. You think about the tapestry, all the different thread colors that come together to paint a beautiful picture. You know, one thread by itself is just a thread. It's just red. But when that red is woven with some blue and some pink and some purple, all of a sudden it begins to take a shape and take a picture uh, take, and show a picture that is unique that only can be glimpsed when it is woven together. So... As we transition, I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute because I don't want to get ahead of your resourcefulness here. So number three, you are resourceful. Tony Robbins, who is a, a well-known motivational speaker, he talks about how... And Tony Robbins is nowhere found in Scripture. How instead of focusing on the lack of resources that you have in your life, like, I don't have enough money to do what I want to do. I don't have enough of an education to do what I want to do. I, my childhood was so screwed up, I can't do what I want to do. Instead of focusing on the lack, lack of resources that you feel like you have in your life, instead focus on the resourcefulness that lives inside of you. Because every one of us... Uh, what resourcefulness lives inside of me? I don't know what you're talking about. Are resourceful. We've got God himself... At our side. Every one of us has resourcefulness, has answers, has solutions. Eric Johnson, the senior leader at Bethel Church, he says, many times we are attracted to a problem because the solution lies inside of us. Do you feel certain things that move your heart, whether it's the, the sex slave trade or whether it's homelessness or, or hunger? Many times we're attracted to those issues because you carry the solution. And lots of times we just push it away. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah, it's just there, whatever. I'm just going to keep doing my job, my daily work, and I'm going to ignore all this stuff that's stirring in my heart. When God's trying to say, I've created you that way. I've created you with solutions to some of these problems. 1 John 2.27 says, But the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. You have every answer to every issue abiding in you. And here's even more proof that they don't know what they're talking about and they're not teaching sound biblical doctrine and they are not baking under the glory of, of the Holy Spirit. First John chapter 2, she quoted verse 27. 
Let's apply our three rules for sound biblical exegesis. They are context, context, context. So the way she's using this verse is, oh, you have all of the answers and resources you need inside of you to do whatever you are, yeah, whatever. That's not what this text is saying at all. First uh, John chapter 2, verse 18. Watch the context. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not, that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father. Mm -hmm. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. So notice how that's working. You know, let what you heard abide in you, and and you will then, by doing that, abide in the Son. In other words, believe the truth, believe the words of the apostles. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Now, verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and it is of no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So, yeah, she's totally ripping this verse out of context and making about something that it's not. And this and the context of this passage is warning us against false teachers who are teaching lies, and no lie is of the truth. And the fact that no lie is of the truth, this is what First uh, John says, uh, and we just read it, these people are not t- telling the truth about Christ and God. These people are liars about God. They are not manifesting the Holy Spirit. We continue. Now, that, what? I mean, I'm surprised. I, I can't be silent about that. I would be jumping up and down if I were you guys. I have every solution to every answer abiding inside of me. No, we're supposed to abide in Jesus. He has all the answers. Now, the struggle is, then why do I still have problems without answers? <laughs> right? It goes back to what you believe. What do you believe is in there? Who do you believe is at your right hand? Who do you believe God says you are? It's like the Sunday school answer is actually true. Right? What's the, what's the right Sunday school answer every time you're in Sunday school to every question? Jesus, Jesus right? Jesus. Did you hear about the teacher? She, Sunday school teacher, she was telling the kids, you know, she was describing, this, this creature is brown and furry and he has a long bushy tail and he climbs in trees and... And he eats acorns and nuts and stores them and stuff like that. What is that? And nobody wanted to answer. And this kid says, well, I finally, Brave, raises his hand. Well, I know the answer is Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel. (laughs) 
I mean, really, it sounds so cliche, but we have an inheritance, we have a, and that is Jesus. We have the mind of Christ. We have his abundance living in us. We have him. It's not just some solution like, I mean, there may be some solutions like a download, like, you know, like a floppy disk. He is the solution. He is the answer. It is in that that you have him in you. It's in him that we live and move and have our being, as some of your prophets have said. It is in him where we find the answers to these problems. It is in his presence. And where is he? He's in you. I put on Facebook this week, the more you recognize the victory within you, the more you'll recognize the victory around you. The ultimate victor has conquered death itself. And he is within you. And the more that you can truly comprehend that reality, the more you will see victory. Now, it is true that Christ dwells within us. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. But the implications are that, oh, well, that somehow means everything Jesus can do, you can do too. That's not how that works. Victory in your own life. And it's not by any striving or any effort or any do, 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 because we all know that's do, do. It's simply becoming aware of the victor inside. So next, you have a powerful destiny in front of you. All of you have a powerful destiny. Regardless... Yeah, you all have a powerful density ahead of you, yeah. Regardless of your past. I dropped out of school at the beginning of 10th grade. Do not do this at home. Many of you did not know that. (laughs) I dropped out of school at the beginning of 10th grade. I was using drugs. I ended up in rehab at 16. I got kicked out of a Dallas public high school. I mean, these are high schools are rough, and I got kicked out of one. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's, it's pretty impressive. Hanging out with the wrong guys. And I wrote a book. I, I, I don't even have my bachelor's degree. I did get my GED. I've been to some seminary. I've been to some college. I've done a little of this, I've done a little of that, and I wrote a book. Now, anything from my past would try to tell me, you can't write a book. Who are you to try to write anything? Who's reading your book? Anything. Who are you to even be up here teaching, speaking, right? Who are you? Yeah, well, actually, God's word makes it clear that because you're a woman, you can't be doing what you're doing. So God's word would have something to say there. It really doesn't matter if you had a Ph.D. or not. You still wouldn't be permitted to be doing what you're doing. But God says that I'm a new creation. Regardless of whether I finished high school, regardless of the stupid mistakes I make, regardless of the fact that I've been divorced... God says that I am a new creation, and with him... Yeah, this isn't even a sermon. I mean, I don't... This is personal testimony time and create theology from my life experiences, and oh, and my husband's, you know, totally tripping out on the the Holy Spirit, too. Uh Uh-huh, right. Him, all things are possible. And more than that, Romans 8 says there is now no condemnation for those who live in Christ Jesus. Even if you're a woman, imagine that. (gasps) Oh, I forgot about that one. Yeah, I forgot about that one. How dare you be preaching right now? She's like, yeah, God's word, the New Testament actually forbids that. You should look it up. You know, she can't preach. She got to preach. That's a joke. So 
what about all those bad things in our life? That's what Romans 8, 28 is really about. It doesn't matter what you've been through, what kind of hell you faced, what kind of stupid, idiotic choices you've made. God is powerful enough to take all those things and work them together for good. It is so important to have a good understanding of the scripture because a lot of times we read it and think God sends all these bad things so that he can work them together. For- yeah, it's kind of weird. While a woman is preaching, the woman says, you need to really know your scriptures. Yeah, the irony is not lost on me there. For good. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that no matter what you go through, God can work it for good. He works so closely with the bad, turning it into good, that many times he gets blamed for sending the bad. But he's just turning it all into good. What does Bill Johnson say? God can win with a pair of twos? Sorry for those of you who are gamblers. We'll talk to you afterwards. But Last point. Last point. Is this You're, me? This is you. This is your I can talk. Point. Woo! Prepare yourselves. You do have an inheritance. We have an inheritance. We have, um, and and I think when we use that term, and when Paul uses that term, sometimes we think just money or finances, and sometimes we get, uh, or or we think in in terms of our Western society, we think I have a destiny, I have an inheritance. We think power or money. I just think we do. That means, oh, I'm going to be some kind of powerful person in some whatever seven mountain you want to choose or whatever, you know, anybody know, you know, entertainment or the politics or, which may be true, but that's not necessarily what the inheritance means here, okay? It's not just about power and money. So it's about you realizing that you are perfectly resourced to be the gospel, to be the good news. Uh, no, I'm not the gospel. The gospel is the proclamation of Christ crucified for our sins and risen bodily from the grave on the third day. I ain't the gospel. You can just go, yeah, the next one, sorry. You are perfectly resourced to be the good news message of Jesus to the world and to your world. And that world for you may start at the baseball field. The jo- Again, which text are they preaching through? Yeah, they're not job, the supermarket, the doctor's office, the family reunion, you fill in the blank. Some of you, it may be on a stage, worldwide stage, or United States stage stage, but for most of us, it's not going to be our, our, it's not going to be a high political office, or some kind of powerful position, or having lots of money. And I'm not declaring negative things, hear me. If God wants you to have lots of money, awesome, better use it right. But you are perfectly resourced to be the good news message of Jesus to your world. That's right. Wherever you are planted right now. That's right. And what I love about this is Paul says, um, here's the balance, if you will. Uh, not the balance, it's not even balanced. But here's the reminder. You are not just gifted and anointed and called and all the wonderful stuff that makes up you just for you. That Yes, you benefit from it, but it's not just for you. It's for me, too. It's for your neighbor, too. The person sitting next to you needs you to be you, and you need them to be them. We're all in this together. Come on, my high school musical people. Come on, you know. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Now, and that passage from Philippians is in light of Christ's sufferings and death and his incarnation. I know I'm significant. 
I have a high level of significance. Melissa does as well. Hers is way high. It is. So it's actually harder probably for her to think of others more significant than ourselves. But that's our, that's our job. I know. No, she actually, the, the higher you think of yourself, the higher you think of other people. That you hear it coming out. It's believe how amazing you are, because I believe how amazing I am. Yep. So in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Look, let each of you look not only out not only for his or her own interests, but also to the interest of others.